Amen. Well, we're in Leviticus, and um, we'll be finishing chapter 14 tonight, Lord willing. Leviticus 11 through 14 is this idea of laws of clean and unclean. And, and again, that's falling even under a broader umbrella of the major theme of Leviticus, which is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Now picture for your second the setting of Leviticus. I know it's just a lot of rules, but it actually has a setting, and I mentioned it last week. The children of Israel are camped at Mount Sinai. It's really just a sequel to the book of Exodus. At the end of Exodus, Moses had not only given the law to Israel, but they built the tabernacle. Do you guys remember that? The tabernacle, amongst other things, had the Ark of the Covenant represent the presence of God. And so it was as if, in actually in, in very real terms, God's presence was right there in the midst of their camp, literally being able to see a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The point I'm trying to make is, is that the holiness of God was very much at the forefront of the Israelites' mind. Does that make sense? Like they understood the awesomeness, the unapproachability of God. And in essence, what Leviticus is, is this handbook for worship of how do you approach a holy God? How do you live a life that's pleasing to a holy God? And so these laws given at this time for these people, the Jews, are talking about all kinds of areas of life that were acceptable and unacceptable, holy and unholy, clean and unclean. The reason I bring that up just kind of in the introduction here is because I don't want to lose sight of the main thing, the idea of this idea of holiness. Let me just say this, guys, listen. God's people, whether you're talking about the Jews or whether you're talking about Christians, God's people should always be marked, listen, with this idea of holiness. Listen to what I'm reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Don't be conformed, listen, to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct since it is written. And now he's quoting Leviticus chapter 11. You shall be holy for I am holy. And again, we talked last week about this word for holy, hagios. And the idea is, is to be separate. And when you're talking about God's people being holy, listen, the idea is, is you are separated to God. You're separated from your old sin and the world, and you're separated to God. And here's where it becomes very practical. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God came into you. And because of that, you have a new nature. And that new nature wants to please God. Amen? We still have the old nature that tugs on us and wants to rule still, but we have a new nature that wants to please God, that wants to walk in His ways. The point I'm trying to make is um, when we say we need to be holy, that's actually a great thing. Like the new you wants to be holy, wants to be set apart from the old stuff and, and cling to the new stuff and be more like God. And because as you are becoming more like him, man, you are filled with life. You are fulfilled with wholeness. You are complete. Amen? The point I'm trying to make, and then I'll move on past my introduction to my introduction, is that if there's a lack of a desire to want to live holy, if there's no interest in holy living for God, 
that's indicative of the fact that there's a problem with your relationship with Jesus. Because as you grow in your knowledge of Jesus, there is a organic desire just to be more like Jesus. And the stuff of the world starts to smell putrid to you, starts to not be as attractive to you. You even try to go back. I think Pastor Steve mentioned that this last Sunday. You, you kind of go, you know, you dip your big toe back in the old world that you used to live. And all of a sudden, guess what? It's not as satisfying as it used to be. It doesn't fulfill like it used to. Because why? You've changed. Your old friends didn't change. The world didn't change. You changed. You've got a new nature, and there's that passion in you to want to live holy, set apart to God. And so holiness is the idea of, of the book of Leviticus. We're dealing with these laws. As we get to chapter 14, we're wrapping up these laws that we're specifically dealing with leprosy. And we might think, what kind of application would that possibly have with us? But we saw that there's a lot of application. How that leprosy is this very powerful picture of sin. And we talked about in chapter 13 how uh, chapter 13 dealt with the examination and the diagnosis of a leper. And then in chapter 14, the first part dealt with the cleansing of a leper who had been healed. And we made all kinds of real-life applications for that. So having said all of that, I want to jump right back into where we left off, chapter 14, verse 33. And let me just give you a quick synopsis of what the rest of the chapter is about. As we get into chapter, or excuse me, verse 33, um, to the end, now what we're going to deal with is the scenario that there's leprosy in your house. Like, what would happen if there was leprous, some kind of leprous disease in your physical house? And what we're going to see is there's a very familiar pattern. There's going to be an examination, a diagnosis, and then some action that they're going to have to take. So what I want to do is just go through this fairly quickly. And then as we get to the end, um, make a couple of quick applications that I feel like the Lord put on my heart. So let's look at verse 33. It says this. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when you come into the land of Canaan, which I give you for a possession, and I put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession, then he who owns the house will come and tell the priest. And there seems to be a case of a disease in my house, verse 36. Then the priest shall command they that, uh, uh, that they empty the house before the priest goes to examine the disease, lest all that uh, are in the house be declared unclean. And afterwards, the priest shall go to see the house. So let's just pause there for a second. Again, I wanted to point out verse 33. Notice what it says. When you come into the land and inherit the the the, the, the or, Take the possession of what I'm giving you or however he worded it. Keep in mind, they're still at Mount Sinai. They haven't gone into the promised land yet. When they get into the promised land, and I'll just refer you to Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting right around verse 10, um, and there's other places. What they are going to find is this. Moses told them, when you get into the promised land, you're going to enjoy fruit from orchards you didn't grow. You're going to drink from wells that you didn't dig. And what else did he say? You're going to live in houses you didn't build. So when they got into the land and dispossessed the Canaanites, they just moved into their houses and took their homes. And so basically he's saying when you are in those homes and there's a case of leprous disease, you know, then he's going to deal with it. By the way, quick, totally unrelated aside application, but I think it might be for somebody who keeps rolling red in my, in my head. God has used this in my life many times before. 
when the children of Israel went into the, the promised land by faith, what they found is God had already gone before them. And there was already food for them to eat, houses for them to live in, jobs for them to work, places. Does that make sense? And I have found every time that the Lord has put on my heart to take any kind of step forward into what he has for me, and maybe you found this to be true in your life, what you find when you step out in faith is that you're all freaked out and scared, but guess what you find out? God's already gone before you. And he's, he's prepared the way. The people that you're supposed to meet, the places you're supposed to work, the thing you're supposed to do, the house you're supposed to live in. And, uh, and I just want to encourage you. You know, maybe you're stepping out of faith or maybe you can just look back and go, that's true. You know, I, when I came to the island, I didn't even know what I was going to live and God already prepared this place for me. And isn't God good? And, and we are so freaked out and worried like, God, I'm not sure if you thought about this, but I'm going to kind of like need a job. And he's like, really? Oh, man, I never even thought about that. I'm glad you told me. He's gone before them, and he'll go before you as you follow him. Well, they get into the house. Notice this. It says, when you do come in, um, and there's a leprous disease in the house. Now, I do want to point out, it, it does say this, and I put a case of leprous disease. Now, that's tripped up a lot of people because they're like, well, why would God put a leprous disease in their house if it's, gonna, if it's wrong and bad? And so there's lots of theories. I don't want to get too off of that. Um, one, it could be a reference to some kind of judicial thing on God's part that he's judging them. Um, it was certainly viewed that way, whether it was right or wrong. Um, or it could just be kind of an expression of God's permissive will. Like, you know, bad things happen in the world. He doesn't stop every bad thing. And through his sovereignty, he's allowing that to happen. But all that to say, in any case, there's a leprous disease in the house. Now, what in the world does that mean? Most people think, and I think it's probably almost common sense, that this is probably referring to some sort of mildew, mold, or fungus. Something growing in the house, in the walls, as we'll see, that is spreading, that it shouldn't be there, something growing there, and he's basically like, you got to get that checked out. So if that was the case, the owner of the house, and I think that is interesting, the, the, the responsibility landed on the owner, not the tenants, but the owner, if there was a problem with the house, and may that be a word to a landlord somewhere, um, that he's supposed to go to the priest and say, um, I got a thing, I think I might have a disease in the house, can you come check it out? Now we pick it up in verse 37. Uh, actually, before that, it says the priest empties the house of the people to get ready. And then he examines it. Look at verse 37. He shall examine the disease. And if the disease in the walls of the house is with greenish or reddish spots, if it appears to be deeper than the surface, then the priest shall go out from the house um, to the door of the house and shut up the house for seven days. So, this is interesting. It's, it's, it's much like, you know, when a person had leprosy, the priest would examine it. So they go into the house. You know, the guy's like, this is the spot right here. What do you think? He looks at it. Okay, it looks like it's deeper than the surface, meaning it's, it's, it's into the plaster. It's into the rock. It's spreading whatever. He says, okay, here's what we're going to do. And the first thing they would do is get everybody out, shut the door, you know, put a big sign on the door, no entry or whatever. And for seven days, that house is like quarantine. Um, keep in mind, by the way, and we've made this point over and over and over again, so I don't feel like I need to, like, it's nothing new at this point, but leprosy is a picture of sin. And even when, and when I read phrases like that, if the leprosy is what? Deeper than the surface. If it's spreading. And, and just again, to give you that, that metaphor, that this is a type, a picture 
of sin. Because sin is deeper than the surface, isn't it? Yes or no? It's deeper than the skin. In fact, by the time it shows up on your skin or by the time it shows up on the wall, it's already gone way deep in there. By the time sin shows itself, it's really just manifesting what's deep inside. What did Jesus say? It's out of the overflow of the mouth that the heart speaks. So if you are spewing bitterness and all that, it's just indicative that the the issue is deeper than you think. And not only that, it spreads. It spreads in your life. It spreads to other people's life. And just, again, another kind of picture of this of this um, parallel between leprosy and sin. But nonetheless, back to this particular instance, they shut the house for seven days and then they come back. So this is what, a couple different things could happen at this point. Um, It can either be good or bad, but here's what happens. Verse 38, the priest shall come again on the seventh day and look. If the disease has spread in the walls of the house, then the priest shall command that they take out the stones in which is the disease, and throw them into an unclean place outside of the city. And he shall have the inside of the house scraped all around. And the plaster that they scrape off, they shall put into an unclean place outside of the city. Then they shall take the stones out of them into the place, excuse me, then they shall take other stones, there we go, and put them in the place of those stones, and he shall take the uh, other plaster and plaster the house. Okay, this is all gonna going somewhere, but just thank you for tracking with me. The priest goes in. Okay, yes, it's a leprous thing. What do they do? They rip the stone out of the wall. And they got to keep in mind the houses in that day, they're not stick built. They're stones and probably not really nice cinder blocks all squared off perfectly. It's rock with mortar stacked on each other. And so think about this. Oh, yeah, that, that section's bad. <coughs> like chiseling out some massive hole out of their side of their house or like the dividing wall like like you're in the kitchen now you're in the bedroom it's like they just bring the whole thing out and then it says they got to scrape the entire inside so they're scraping the plaster and it's dust and then they take that material the rock that was infected the plaster all the scraping dust all of that and they take it into an unclean place by the way god was way more on top of hazmat stuff than we were you know what i mean like this god god was very smart in this. They didn't have all the scientific understanding, and yet here he is, is like, hey, this is hazardous material. I don't know if like the priest had like little priest hazmat suits with an ephod or something on it, but all that to say is they take out the contaminated material, they take it to an unclean place and leave it there. Then they have to rebuild. They have to put the stone back in. They have to plaster it, blah, blah, blah. So that's quite the process. That's all I'm getting at. Verse 43, if the disease breaks out again, So you went through that hole. Can you just see this? It breaks out again. You're sitting there. You've had the whole priest visitation quarantine thing. You've destructed, constructed, remodeled, plastered. You're finally done with it. A week or two has gone by. You're sitting down watching TV. And right behind the TV, you go, what the? There's a little more mold shows up. Well, it says if it breaks out again after he's taken out the stones and scraped the house and plastered it. Then the priest shall go and look, and if the disease has spread in the house, it's a persistent leprous disease. Gosh, going back to that picture of sin, how many of you guys are like, I got one of those? A persistent leprous disease? That pretty much describes my life sometimes, or the way I feel anyway. A persistent leprous disease in the house, it is unclean. Now check this, and he shall break 
down the house. It's stones and timber and all the plaster of the house and carry them out of the city to an unclean place. Moreover, whoever enters the house while it is shut up shall be unclean until evening. Whoever sleeps in the house shall wash his clothes. Whoever eats in the house shall wash his clothes. I guess I'm just, I know what I'm leading up to in my application, so I'm just trying to paint a picture for you. Like, this is heavy. Like, this is somebody's home, right? And, and if after they've done the process and it comes back again, they're not taking out that little section. You got to break down the entire house and start over. Okay, so that was scenario number one. If after that initial removal of the leprosy and the scraping of the walls and the replastering and all of that, if it returns. If it didn't return, different scenario. Look at verse 48. But if the priest comes and looks, and if the disease has not spread in the house after the house was plastered, then the priest shall pronounce the house clean, for the disease is healed. And for the cleansing of the house, he shall take two small birds, here we go, with cedar wood, scarlet yarn, hyssop, and shall kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel over fresh water. And shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet yarn along with the live bird, dip them in the blood of the bird that was killed and in the fresh water and sprinkle the house seven times. Verse 52, thus he shall cleanse the house with the blood of the bird and with the fresh water and the live bird and the cedar wood and hyssop and the scarlet yarn. Verse 53, and he shall make atonement for the house and it shall be clean. Now, um, the, the scenario is after that initial removal and the plastering and the, you know, all the rigmarole, if it doesn't come back, the priest comes and inspects it. He just deems it officially clean. Then there's the ceremony that harkens back to the first part of the chapter. I'm not going to redo the whole thing, but I will mention this. That bird ceremony, again, speaks of who? Come on, Sunday school answer. Come on, people. The bird ceremony speaks of who? Jesus. And you might say, I'm saying Jesus, but I'm having trouble seeing how the birds speak of Jesus. These two birds speak of Christ in that. The first bird speaks of Christ in his death. The second bird speaks of Christ in his resurrection. The first bird, a bird, a heavenly being that's contained into an earthen vessel and killed. And it speaks of Christ who is God himself leaving his heavenly throne, coming into an earthen vessel, if you would, a body, filled with the Holy Spirit, symbol, uh, symbolized by water, and yet is killed. And then you read about wood, which speaks of the cross. You read about hyssop, which we read in Matthew 27, was the instrument, like, it's like a little bushy plant, and they would dip the sour wine up in it, uh, into it, and they would raise it up to Christ. So hyssop was present at the cross. And scarlet, which speaks of not only royalty, but also of blood. Isaiah said, I think Isaiah 1.10, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And so the point is, is all those little things put together all point us to Christ. And guys, Christ died for our sins. But then the second bird speaks of his resurrection. It was dipped in the blood, so it's marked by death, but set free and alive and ascending back into heavens. Just like Christ marked by death, he'll always have the scars. He'll always have the mark of death, but he raised to new life and ascended back into heaven. Amen? And the reason that's important, again, is because as leprosy is a type of sin, 
The only way that we are cleansed from sin, the only way we're forgiven, and the only way we are able to live a life that is clean and free from sin is because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And I would refer you to last week's study. We talked a little bit more about the delineation between justification and sanctification. How justification is like kind of like the healing of the leprosy in the moment where sanctification was pictured more by the ceremony, a process by God's grace by which we are becoming practically what we are positionally. And so that was kind of the importance of all of that. So let's just wrap up the chapter and then we're done. Kind of. Verse 54. This is the law of any case of leprous disease for an itch, for leprous disease in a garment or in a house, for a swelling or an eruption, a.k.a. pimple or a spot, to show when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of the leprous disease. So those last couple of verses are summarizing the last couple of chapters. So kind of as we look at this, you guys, you know, um, I just want to point out, I think a pretty basic application. I'll develop it a little bit. But as I was reading through this, I think what really stuck out to me were basically two things. The severity and, let me put it this way. Let me think about it for a second. Hold on. The severity of of the leprosy in the house and the the dramatic um, actions that were taken to rectify it. Does that make sense? How dramatic it was. Like, Like how serious the leprosy in the house was and how dramatic measures were taken to get rid of it. I mean, just think, think about that uh, for a second. That, that this leprosy in the house was not something that was to be taken lightly. It wasn't something that was to be overlooked. It was something that was very, very serious. Now listen, they may not have completely understood why it was that serious. They may have looked at that and said, Ah, oh, who's ever died of a little black mold? Well, we know the answer to that. A lot of people, you know, like, that's actually not good. You know, you, can't, you shouldn't be breathing the spores of that stuff. And, and, and so they may not have understood. Maybe they did understand completely the danger of it. But the point was, I would imagine, and, and, and forgive me here, I'm going to speculate here. I'm going to just kind of step into the context historically for a second. But I can imagine that it would have been very easy to downplay the seriousness of a little patch of mold in my house and, and, and just kind of go through this, this generalization or this justification of like, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. Minimize it. How bad could it really be? Do we really need to call the priest in on this? In fact, we'll just cover it up. We got our family portrait hanging over the, no one will ever know the mold is there. We can manage it. We'll just go through and spray a little bleach on it. That's what I did. I had a house in Oregon, and it rains a lot in Oregon like here, but it's a different kind of rain where I lived on the coast of Oregon. It just rained basically from January to December 31st. And, uh, you know, we got like 96 inches of rain a year spread out, and it was just wet all the time. And this particular house that we owned at the time backed up against this marsh, basically, so like, and it was affected by the tide, and it was just wet. My back, literally, most of the year, my backyard was just squashy, like, 
you know, you guys around here get sometimes. But in my back corner of my bedroom, there was this little patch of just like little mold or whatever that would just pop up. And that's exactly what I did. I'd be like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And I'd come by with a bleach bottle every once in a while. It's fine. Out of sight, out of mind. And guess what? It became kind of a problem. Underneath our house, it kind of became a problem. We'll get into the details of that, but you get the point. I can imagine that it would be easy for them to minimize it, try to manage it, try to control it, try to cover it. But what needed to be done is it needed to be dealt with. There could have been that thought of, I mean, yeah, I know it's a problem, but it's so inconvenient to call priest John over here. To, and then, honestly, I can't afford. It's embarrassing. The neighbors are going to know we've got leprosy in the house. They're going to put the circus tent on our house, you know. I don't want that stigma attached to me. It's going to cost me money to remodel. I'm sure there was 101 reasons for 101 motives of why it would have been easy to downplay the seriousness of it. But what God was communicating was, no, listen, I don't want that to be something that is minimized or that you try to deal with. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be looked at, called what it is, examined, and removed. And here's the process for doing that. Now, you already know where I'm going with this as you're doing the math. But as this is a picture of sin, um, it reminds me that of the seriousness of sin and how it needs to be dealt with quickly and severely in our lives. When there's sin in the house, when there's leprosy in the house, it was serious and needed to be dealt with quickly and severely. And when there's sin in the house, it needs to be dealt with quickly and severely. Why? Because sin is serious. The leprosy was serious. Now, please, if I lost you, I know it's, it's kind of, it feels like a weird night to me for some, I'll be really honest. It's been kind of that spiritual battle thing all day. But I want you to hear this. I want you to, if, you, if everything's lost you and tuned, you know, you've tuned out, I want you to hear this. Sin in the house is serious. And it needs to be dealt with severely. Sin is serious. Romans 6.23 says this. The wages of sin is sometimes death. Does it say that? It, doesn't, it says it, but it doesn't say it. It doesn't say it is sometimes death. It just says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is always death. The moment Adam bit the tomato, because that's what it was, evil, evil fruit. Called, I'm just kidding. Whatever the fruit was, he bit into it. And the moment he ate it, listen, he, death entered in. Oh, not physical death, but spiritual death, and eventually physical death. And the ramifications were so much larger and so much grander than Adam could have ever even possibly realized. And this is the mistake we make. We think that sin is not that big of a deal, but guys, sin equals death. Death to vitality in your relationship with Christ. Death in, in an eternal aspect if you never come to faith in Christ. Death to marriages. Death to relationships. Death to, it just brings death all the time. That's what it does. Sin is bad. You can quote me on that. Sin is bad. Sin destroys. Do you guys realize 
that when the priest went in and ordered them to remove chunks of their house and scrape the plaster, and re- that that was not an act of judgment, that that was an act of mercy. They were saying, oh, to, for the benefit of you and for the benefit of your family and for the health of everybody involved, it's best that we just got to, I know it's going to hurt. It's going to sting a little and it's going to cost. We got to get rid of this stuff. God's that angry. God wants to help you here. What's to bless you here? And the only way is to get rid of it, remove it. And sin is serious. You know, I was thinking of a few verses. In Mark chapter 9, you can jot it down. Mark 9, verse 42. Jesus said this about sin. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. There's a word picture. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to go with two hands into hell, to unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It would be better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than two eyes and to be thrown into hell. That's our Jesus. That's mild, meek Jesus saying that. Now, he wasn't being literal. I think we can all agree on that. He was not saying, or else none of us would have hands, none of us would have feet, none of us would have eyeballs. We would just be stumps at church. But he was painting a very vivid picture, and I think the best way it's ever been put, the way that I remember it is, if you don't deal severely with sin, sin will deal severely with you. That's the point I'm trying to make here is that sin is bad. Sin kills. Sin is serious. Sin is not to be minimized. Anytime I lose sight of that, it's so healthy for me, and it's healthy for us as a church to just look to the cross. I know that's a very pastory thing to say, but I'm not saying it as a pastor so much as I'm saying it's just your brother. When I lose sight of the seriousness of sin, when I begin to just compromise and downplay, I need to look at Jesus on the cross. I need to see him, in a sense, being flogged with the cat of nine tails. I need to see, in a sense, the blood. I need to see him going to the cross. I need to ponder and consider, and this is why communion is so vital to our lives as Christians because it takes us back to the cross and it makes us stare at something that quite frankly is unpleasant. And anytime I, us, we, the church, lose sight of the seriousness of sin, we just gotta look at the cross and understand that God the Father did that to his own son because of my sin. And it was horrible and it was disgusting and it cost Jesus his life. Sin is serious, and it needs to be dealt with severely when sin is in the house. It needs to be dealt with severely. You know, just like it would have been easy for the homeowner to, for various reasons, minimize, try to just handle himself, cover it up, don't want to be embarrassed. Guys, don't we do that? Don't we do that with sin? When there's a sin in our life or a sin that, you know, whatever, it's so easy for us to be like, well, it's not that big of a deal. So-and-so does this. Isn't that funny how we always compare our sin to somebody else who's sinning worse? Well, at least I'm not like, you know, Austin. <laughs> or at least I'm not like Isaiah or Mitch, you know. 
No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Somehow I try to work Mitch in every sermon. Uh, <laughs> we minimize it, or we just say it's not that big of a deal. Or worse yet, listen, this is what really I think I, over my years of walking with Christ, I've just been called out on. I try to manage. Anybody try to manage your sin? Oh, I know it's not that bad, but I got it under control. The beautiful... Uh, illustration for that in the Old Testament is when the children of Israel go into the land of promise and they're told to destroy all of the Canaanites, but they don't. They let some live there and they just tax them or make them servants. Guess what happens for the rest of their life? Those ones they didn't destroy rise up and give them problems the rest of their lives. If you don't destroy sin, if I don't destroy sin, sin will come back and destroy me. That's just the nature of it. It will not be contained. It will not be marginalized, and it will not be, you know, um, controlled or under your thumb. It will, it will let you think that it can, but in reality, it won't. It won't stay hidden. It won't stay small because it's underneath the surface, and it spreads. And so the point I want to make is, guys, when there's sin in the house, we got to understand it's severe, and it needs to be dealt with severely. What do I mean by that? There's sin in the house. I want to give you three maybe layers of application for that when we talk about sin. What do I mean by sin in the house? The first thing I, I mean is, is, is really just the house of our own heart, right? Our lives. We can look at it that way. When there's sin in your life that you know about, um, we need to look at it seriously and we need to deal with it. And I'm going to end on that one, so I'll circle back to that. But another layer of application is what do I mean by sin in the house? Um, I think we can take this to another application as parents. How about our household? How about just in our household? When there's sin in our household, we need to understand it's serious and needs to be dealt with. Does that make sense? I'm thinking right now specifically of moms and dads raising kids, whether little kids, grade school kids, preteens, teenagers. We are still responsible, dads, and if you're a single parent, dad or mom, to, to the best of our ability, not allow sin in our house. And, and, and when the kids are little, I mean, it's like, it's easy, a lot easier to police, right? Like, no, you're not going to watch that show. No, you can't have that. No, you know, and, and it's just very, no, no, no. Then we did, but then they get older, it gets a little more serious. And, and then if they have smartphones or if they're watching, and listen, it falls on us to regulate to the best that we can. I mean, sinners are sinners, and we're all sinners. And if a sinner wants to do something, they'll find a way to do it. But to the best of our ability as parents, we need to make sure that we don't allow sin to go unchecked in our household. I'm sorry, son, but no, you're not allowed to watch that. Or you, here's, here's one that's just hard. It's just tough territory. If you have kids with cell phones, cell phones were like a newer thing when our kids started growing up. I mean, that ages me a little bit, but in all fairness, understand cell phones haven't been around that long. <laughs> you need to use great wisdom, mom and dad, when you're deciding to put that phone in your, your kids' hands. And then listen, you have every right to regulate that thing, and you have every right to take that thing away. Cell phones are not a, 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 a right they are a privilege, and with that privilege comes a lot of responsibility, and they are an avenue to 
depravity if you're not careful. And so we need to, as parents, make sure that we are lovingly, and I think as you get, your kids get older, parents, please make sure you tell your kids why and not just what. To tell them why this is wrong, to sit and explain, and if there's failure or whatever, okay, but we're not going to continue, and no, you can't hang out with that person, and here's why, and no, this is why we don't watch those movies, and here's why, and we, but, that, but they're not going to like me. I got a newsflash for you. You did not become a parent to be liked, and it's not your job to be liked. They're not going to be my friend. You're not supposed to be their friend until later, until later. Right now, what they need is a parent that doesn't just let them run wild and do whatever they want, you have to regulate. You have to, at some level, say, this is okay and this is unacceptable in my house. And you need to do so lovingly, but at times you need to do it so firmly. And let me say this, too. Please don't expect your children to live at a higher level of morality or spirituality than you. Well, I can't believe you're watching that. Why are you surprised? Because you watch that. You're drinking? Why are you surprised? You drink. You're smoking that? Why are you surprised? You're smoking that. And I don't say that condemningly. I'm just saying, let's, can we please be real about this? You are setting the tone. You are setting the example in your house. And so you need to take it seriously. And I think there's, there's just such a lack sometimes because we can get lazy as parents. And we don't want the hassle. And we can think of all the excuses. But we need to lovingly exert the energy and say, son, daughter, I'm sorry, but this is not okay. And here's why. We're, we're Jesus followers. As for me and my house. And I don't mean like be legalistic and just rules. I'm talking like break it down for them. Pray it through with them. And if they understand, great. And if they like it, great. If not, it doesn't matter. This is what we do in my house. Amen? We need to make, take sin seriously in our house of our souls, the household of our homes. But listen, I think there's an application for the household of the church. Three times in the New Testament, in Ephesians, 1 Timothy, and I think 1 Peter, uh, the author, Peter or Paul, uh, refers to the church as the household, quote-unquote, of God. And we need to understand that when there's sin in the house, it's serious. It affects everybody. And this is the lie of the devil. I'm not hurting anyone with my sin. Wrong. You're hurting yourself, and you're hurting your family, and you're hurting the name of Christ. And I know this sounds very harsh. Trust me, it'll end on a a lighter mode, but I think that we have allowed so much of the culture to infiltrate the church that we take a very soft approach on sin, and we forget sometimes that, that sin hurts. Sin is bad. And when, when sin is in the household of the family of God, it hurts you, it hurts the family, it hurts everybody connected to us. And that's why you see in the New Testament this extreme example of church discipline. And if, in 1 Corinthians 5, there's a gentleman, I don't even want to call him that, there's a guy sleeping with his stepmom. Everybody in the church knows about it, including the leadership, and nobody's saying anything. And Paul is, in a sense, basically communicating that evidently they were kind of boasting in how um, just accepting they were and how big-hearted and, you know, inclusive they were. And Paul's like, no, that is so wrong. He said, I don't even need to be there to judge this. Kick him out of the church and deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. And we read that and we're like, oh, that's so unloving. No, that is the most loving thing to do. 
Don't allow him to come into the body of Christ under the protection of the church if he is in a relationship like that and unwilling to repent, flaunting it, not going to change his ways, then at that point, no, you can't associate with the body of Christ and have all the benefits and covering and privilege of that. He says, release him to Satan. And what he means by that is, let the guy just flesh out until he comes to the end of himself. Don't coddle him. Don't enable him. Don't allow him. Let him get beat up by the world if that's the avenue he's going to take. By the way, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, evidently they took Paul's advice. They boot the guy. Then Paul's writing them and like, listen, if the guy's repented, what are you doing? Go get him. Bring him back in. Love on him unless he's overcome with grief. Amen? There's forgiveness. We've all sinned. We've all screwed up. But if he learned his lesson, bring him back into the fellowship. Open arms. A lot of people are like, how come you pastors never do church discipline? Well, first of all, it's not as easy as you think it is. And second of all, I think that, in my opinion, situations where a church leadership has to remove somebody from fellowship should be so rare if the rest of the body was doing their part. Because if we're actually doing what the Word of God says, that means if we see our friend or our brother in sin, we go to him. I think 90% of the time, that's what nips it right in the bud. People come to pastors all the time and say, did you know so-and-so is doing this? And, and we go, crazy, what'd you say? Oh, I didn't talk to him. Don't come to me. I don't want to hear about it. Well, they're in your church. What are you talking about? You're the church. We're the church. They're your, you, I don't even know that person. You know him. You go talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. That's embarrassing. Oh, I'll do it. Isn't that what we pay you to do? thought we had you on staff for that kind of thing. Shame on us. Shame on us. Galatians 6 says, you see a brother or sister overtaken in a sin. You who are spiritual, approach that one. Restore that one in meekness, lest you be tempted to do the same thing. See, the way that the body of Christ works is we're a community, we're a family. And I don't know all the people you know very well, and I'm not expected to, and you're not expected to know all the people I know. So this is supposed to work where we self-police. And as long as humility, and, and so there are cases where there's unrepentance, and there's digging in of the heels, and it has to escalate, and it has, and not, this wasn't supposed to be the, the main gist of the sermon. The point is, is that, Doing that is not an act of judgment or being mean. That's actually the most loving thing we can do. Why? Because sin kills and sin hurts. We're not to come with a wagging finger and accusatory attitude and all that. We're just to come in love and meekness and humility. But we got to deal with the sin in the house. And guys, this is the reason. This isn't in my notes or anything, guys. I'm really kind of shooting from the hip right now, but... I think this is a reason why a lot of people are just so turned off by the church is because, and we say we're a family, but we cheese out on it so easily. And we don't, and I'm at the, let me say this, lest I come off like some hero of the whole story. I'm at the front of the line of this. I don't like confrontation. I know that about my personality. I know that. And it's hard for me to tell somebody I love, hey, you're, you're in sin. But it falls on me to do that sometimes, and it falls on you to do that sometimes. And that's the most loving thing we can do for the body. Amen? Because when it's removed, 
You know, I can think of one time at the church I pastored in um, Oregon where we had to remove somebody from the church. It was hard, and there's repentance. And when we brought that guy back in, I can't even describe to you the feeling of joy in the family. There was no judgment, no weirdness. It was just love. Go figure. The Bible works. All that to say is that sin has to be dealt with. Now, can I circle back to that first application and and really just, because, I mean, ultimately it does start here. It starts with us in our own personal lives. Um, When you have sin in your life, it's not a matter of if, it's really a matter of when. We all have things we mess up in. And then there's other sins that are kind of what we call besetting sins that are kind of reoccurring hard ones for us. You have yours, I have mine. We need to deal with those things. We need to not try to manage them. We don't need to cover them up. We really need to just deal with those. But what does that mean to deal with them? Because I could just end it there and be like, deal with your sin, let's pray. Amen. You know. But how do you deal with it? Well, repent. You repent. I love the word repent. You know why? It's a hope word. It's a great word. Erase forever out of your mind the connotation that repent is some kind of negative word. It is not. It is a great word. They're cut to the heart on the day of Pentecost after Peter preaches, what must we do to be saved? Repent. It's good news. Repent. Now, we all have the kind of, a lot of us have that negative idea of what repentance means. Whenever I even think of the word repent, my mind flashes. I think I've used this story before, but my mind flashes to Seattle. Years ago, I had the opportunity to watch the Rams beat Seattle in a football game. It's glorious. But I think I've used this example, I know, forgive me for the repetition, but I just remember that sign, the classic sandwich board sign, the guy in front of the stadium on Sunday condemning us for being at a football game instead of at church. Wait a minute. How did you get here? Anyways, the sign was like, repent, sinners, fornicators, adulterers, sports fans. I'm like, dude, I, bravo, bro. I'm sure you have led so many people to Christ with that, with that sign. No wonder people mock the idea of repentance. But I'm here, hopefully, to remind you that repentance is not a bad word. Repentance is a great word. It basically means a change of mind that results in a change of direction. You change your mind. You think differently about, what, about whatever it is the subject happens to be. And you take your thoughts and you align them with God thought, God's thoughts on that issue, which usually means you're changing your mind because you're thinking about it. If somebody's wrong, it's not God. We laugh at that, but you got to be serious, right? Before you were saved, you're like, well, I thought just sleeping with whoever I wanted to is fine. I mean, that's just how you do it. That's like life, right? You mean God's not into that? No. He's thinking like, with your spouse, you know, or, you know, what if I use that one because that's an easy one to take a shot at, but like whatever the, the, the issue is, God's way of thinking about it is different than ours. So repentance is we say, you know what, even though I don't understand, I'm doing this on faith, but I'm changing the way I think and I'm going to align myself with the way you think. And because I'm doing that, I'm going to change the way I'm 
living and, and going. It's kind of like you're walking this direction. Repentance is like a change of thought that results in a change of direction. Now I'm going this direction. Does that make sense? So the idea of repentance is a beautiful, wonderful thing because it means there's hope, guys. You're like, oh, I got sin on my house. Cool. Join the club. Repent. And here's what, just a couple things about repentance. Repentance, I think, has to involve confession. Confession. In fact, the word confess, if I'm remembering correctly in the New Testament, is homo legeo, homo meaning the same. Uh, legeo means to speak. It means to speak the same thing. Here's what, here's what it says in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, right, our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Let me give you another one. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. But what is confession? Let me tell you what confession is not. This is not confessing. I'm so sorry, Lord. Like, it's okay to be sorry. That's good. This is not confession. I promise I'll never do it again. Or I did that, but you know, really, the reason I did that, that's not confession either. Confession is just not blaming, not promising. Confession is this. You say it's this. I think I thought it was this. I was wrong. I did it. I have no excuses, and I'm not making any promises. I'm just telling you I am wrong, and I'm asking you to forgive me. Anytime your child comes to you like that, and anytime a child of God goes to God like that, any parent is going to be like, forgiven, right? But it also includes, guys, that change of direction, where we put off the old man and we put on the new. And we say, you know what? I repented of this. I was sorry. I confessed it. But that also means I can't continue living in the same way, whatever that may look like. It means you flush it down the toilet. It means you delete that phone number or take that app off your phone or, or whatever it is that it caused you to whatever, you repent. And then God meets you in that by his grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit and gives you the power to live in a different way. This isn't just willpower, guys, right? This is God's power, and he meets us. He teams up with us when we confess, when we change directions, when we forsake it, when we repent. It's being dealt with. Amen? So important. Let me end by reading a quote from Psalm 32. This is by a guy who knew something about sin, and he knew something about trying to cover it up, cover it up and pretend it didn't happen and managing it. His name, his name was David. He committed adultery, got a girl pregnant. In an attempt to try to cover it up, he tried to get the dad or the, the husband drunk and, and go sleep with his wife so everybody would think it was their kid. This is King David, by the way. That didn't work, so he basically ordered his death, signed it, and made him carry it to his commanding officer and basically had this man murdered along with several other soldiers that were murdered. And then for the next nine months, as a sham, a cover-up, as soon as Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was dead, David brought Bathsheba into his household and married her. And in the eyes of everybody in the kingdom, they thought, what a benevolent king. One of his soldiers died, and he took that poor widow into his house. What a great guy. All the while, he was covering up his own sin. And it went on for 
six, seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever months, almost a year, until the prophet came to him and busted him. You guys remember that? And it all came to a big fat head and then popped. That's a visual. And then David wrote Psalm 32, and he said, Oh, how happy or blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Happy or blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count or impute iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. Guy knows what he's talking about. When I stopped trying to deceive and I got free from this, I'm so happy. He says in verse 3, For when I was silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. I love the poetic nature of this. The bones, the core of who he was was inside he looked one way, or outside he looked one way, on one way, but on the inside he was groaning, aching. Just the conviction and the guilt and the shame of what he had done was just taking its toll on him. Verse 4 says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You don't have to raise your hand, but has that ever happened to you where you know you've done somebody dirty or you've done something wrong and you're not really coming clean with it before God and you just feel that heavy hand of conviction on your life? Don't raise your hand. You can give me one of these if you want. If you can, if you can, if you can relate, all right. And then he says, and then here we go. Here, here it is. Oh, let me, I got to finish that one. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. Literally, that means my juice was all dried up by the heat of summer. Or I like the way the NSAB puts it, my vitality was dried up. He had no juice in the tank, so to speak. He was absolutely just sucked dry of any vitality in his life because of unconfessed sin. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and he forgave my sin. And he goes on. The the point I want to make is like, if you're in a place tonight where you've minimized some sin in your life, and you know it, I'm not asking you to go deep inside and try to find something. If you just know it, the Lord is telling you tonight, stop minimizing it, one. My son had to die for that. Secondly, it's hurting you. It's hurting the family. And he would free you of that tonight. He would free you of that. How, why continue another night with that heavy, dried-up, parched spirit when you can just be free? And guys, this goes for tomorrow and next week. The mo- I pray God keeps me on a short leash all the time. The moment I realize I've blown it, whether in my mind or in deed, I just am learning to just go straight to God and say, God, that was wrong and I'm sorry, please help me not to do that again. And I don't feel guilty about it anymore. I put it at the foot of the cross, and I walk away victorious. And you can too tonight. Amen? Well, may the Lord speak to your heart. Sin is serious. It's not to be trifled with, minimized, controlled, managed. It's to be dealt with. There's only one way to deal with it. Ultimately, Jesus dealt with it completely on the cross on our behalf. Amen? And because he did that and raised from the dead, because he was bird one and bird two, we can come anytime we fail and confess and forsake it. And it's like that stone is ripped out and it's replaced with a new one with fresh plaster, clean. Amen? Let's all stand together.
Father, we come tonight and we praise you and thank you for your word. Not one of us has, have ever gotten through a week, Lord, where we haven't failed in some way, I'm sure, a day. But thank you, Lord, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ and that we can confess our sin and be clean. And I just want to pray right now Lord, if there's anything that your spirit is convicting us about, that we would just be quick to just confess that and get rid of it tonight. Would you, in the privacy of your own heart right now, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, just allow the great high priest to come into your house and search and examine? And if he puts his finger on something right now, maybe an attitude, maybe a bitterness, unforgiveness for that last guy at the last church or whatever, something your wife did, your husband said, a lustful intent, a thought, gossip this week, something that he's putting his finger on. In the quietness of your own heart between you and him, would you just confess that and bring it out into the light right now? Just between you and the Lord. Go ahead. Father, we thank you so much that you bore all of our sin on the cross and you have made us white as snow. And thank you, Lord, that when you bring your conviction, it's not to rub our nose in it or make us feel guilty. It's so that you can just come in as our hero and remove it from us and that we can be clean and forgiven and free and just vitality returned. And I just want to pray right now that any guilt, any shame, any any of that condemnation would just be released and gone forever right now from any sin that was confessed to you tonight. And then we would understand that because of the cross and the resurrection, we are free and clean and that, Lord, we can just go our way with joy in our heart and a spring in our step. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you guys.